Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. Welcome to Dan's Talks. My guest today is A.M. Holmes, the celebrated author of several novels and short stories, and now she's doing work for um, HBO, um, making uh, streaming things there. And uh, I, I, I've been reading about you, and you have something in common with one of my daughters, and I consider it to be special every time I've run into somebody who went to that school. And you know what I'm talking about. Sarah Lawrence? Yes, of course. Yeah. They just come out very weird, including my daughter and possibly you. And you can tell them they, they're absolutely different from all other, usually women, than anybody else. And some men go there. But I didn't want to get started on that so much as uh, tell me a little bit how you, you got into writing. I know I know when you were 19, you produced something called, called Jack and talk about what that was. Sure. So Jack was my first novel, which I wrote uh, as, a, as a homework assignment in school, in college at American University. And it was a novel about a kid whose dad was gay. And I remember the teacher said to me then, professor, oh, this will be very controversial. And I thought, oh, well, you know. That's that was the you know early life, and that book is still one of the hundred most banned books in this country, and it also was always on the you know American Library Association best books for kids, because it's really all about a boy learning to deal with and discover his own bias and trying to figure out what does it mean to him that he has a dad who's gay and how does that change his sense of himself. So that yeah wrote it when I was nineteen, but before that I'd already written a play that had been produced and and was writing poems and. You know, and I did that as homework because the funny thing was uh, the, the professor said, you know, what makes you think you can write a novel? And I thought, well, I know I can't write the paper. <laughs> you know, so. Well, the, you started writing and it's, you've taken on a, a genre that seems to have been created by yourself, which is to, to write stuff that is very controversial. Uh, I, I read that uh, uh, your first, uh, the first book or one of the first books that was really noticed was the end of Alice, which was written from the perspective, the first person of a convicted child molester and murderer. And yeah. uh, there were the reviews of it I, I had read were either, uh, I were, there were three kinds of reviews, which I thought was really interesting. One was, I hated it. Another one was, I couldn't put it down. I loved it. And the third one was, and which I think became interesting later on, was that they, you? It was said that you are a really great writer. That was kind of that you had to work through these emotions, or that people had to work through the emotions to learn more about. And maybe you would write something without all the sturm und drang that came came by. Did that happen, or are you still in in the midst of what you do? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think about. People often are describe my work as shocking or provocative. And I think I don't set about thinking, oh, I'm going to write something shocking. I think I'm writing about the world that we're living in. 
And the world that we're living in is filled with things to me that are quite disturbing. Everything from the, the number of children that are abused and that, it, you know, things that were happening. I mean, that book came out actually in 1993 in the churches and all these different things. And it, it's front page news all around the country. And yet somehow when the novel comes out, they're like, oh my God, I never heard of this. You know, and that was actually the reason I chose to tell it from the point of view of this, you know, reprehensible person was I wanted to hold us accountable morally and, and culturally and say, why does this keep happening? Why are we as a society so bad at dealing with these problems? So, you know, I think my work definitely touches nerves and threads that make people uncomfortable. But I also, it's important to me that it be um, entertaining and that it always be deeply human because I think that that's at the core of always what I'm writing about is human behavior. And, you know, my goal is always to tell the story as kind of organically and truthfully for the situation and the characters. And, and I would say in the over the more recent years, I, the, the work has gotten a little bit funnier and I've let out my sense of humor a little more because I feel like that's also important that if you can make people laugh, you can also be more serious simultaneously. Well, you've, you've been uh, uh, celebrated. You've gotten a Guggenheim. You, you've um, been given awards for short stories and prizes. And so it's, it's been quite successful. What book do you think best tells the story that you're trying to get across that you've written so far? You know, what's interesting is I think it's, it's on the one hand, it's a little bit like when you have children and you have, now I have 13 children and they're all different and they all have their, you know, good qualities and complicated qualities. Each piece I write is very much written in relation to the time we're living in. So the last novel, which came out in hardcover last fall and comes out in paperback this fall called The Unfolding was really about two things. It was a, a novel, both about an American family that begins to kind of fall apart as it discovers its own secrets and, and has to deal with those truths within the family, but also about our political establishment and this idea I had quite a long time ago that both sides, left and right, had lost track of the actual American people <laughs> and, and how, to, you know, how to govern the country and the, the actual needs and desires of, of our citizens. And so I wanted to write a novel that was both darkly comic, but also complicated illustrating that and illustrating the impact of what we now call dark money on politics across the board. And so that's what the unfolding is. And I think I, again, in that weird prescient way, I hit the nail on the head so hard, it might've gone you know, straight through to the other side. I know you wrote a book where they people set their house on fire. Is this that book? No, that's another book called Music for Torching with this this gruntled couple can't figure out how to like deal with their marriage. So they accidentally burn down their house. And what's so funny is I bought this little house I've had for many years in East Hampton, probably 25 years ago and with like sort of the first actual any money I had. And I got a Weber kettle and it was like a big deal to get your own, you know, grown up Weber kettle, not a fancy electric one. And I remember one of the first times I tried to cook on it, I thought, oh crap, I put it too close to the house. And I remember being terrified that I was going to accidentally burn down my little, this house was built in 1900. I was going to burn down my little house. And I thought that will make news. Oh, you know, so nutty novelist burns down own house. You know? <laughs> well, how did you come to settle in East Hampton? I, yeah. I think you were born and raised in Washington. 
I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and I first came out here in about 1985. And two, two threads brought me out here. One was I had grown up, obviously, sort of knowing the history of the Hamptons and the artistic history of it, which is hugely important. And then I went fairly early on in my career as a, a, as a playwright. Uh, Edward Albee invited me out to his barn in Montauk. And that was amazing. And I you know, fell in love with Montauk and Edward used to bring the mail every day and we would cook dinner for him. And the barn now is actually being renovated. Uh, the architect is Deborah Burke, who's a, another East Hampton architect, who's the Dean of Architecture at Yale. But at the time the barn was really dilapidated. And just every night you thought, how many bugs will be in my bed tonight? But that was pretty great. And then I had at the time a therapist like in the late 1980s, who rented a little house on Beach Road in Amagansett and told me about it. And so I managed to rent that little house, you know, a hundred million years ago. And, you know, I, I should have bought it <laughs> in, that, in that way that we all say I should have bought it. But spending those, I spent a lot, quite a few summers on Beach Road. And I have to say, I love that too, because it was so you know, that's one of those streets that goes right down to the beach and you literally just would roll your bike down to the beach and it was sandy at the end. And then I would go to the farm market and I'd get my mail delivered, just general delivery, Amagansett, New York, um, and go to the post office and be like, do you have any letters for me? So it was, it was pretty fantastical. And, and that was when, you know, Edward Albee was around, uh, the wonderful writer, Benjamin Taylor had a house in Springs and he would have these incredible dinner parties and Bob Caro and just every hero you ever had would be there. So I've been here ever since. I, I uh, spent uh, in my, a lot of my youth in the early years when I was running the newspaper in Montauk. And uh, I never got to meet Edward Albee, or, but I knew, all, I knew about the barn. I think it was up by the Montauk Manor, but I never knew exactly. Sort of, it was, it's sort of slightly, I mean, it's on that side but a little bit further out and up. Uh, and I would go literally to the church and play bingo at the church. And I just loved it. And I'd go to the Montauk Library and, you know, I mean, obviously I was there, the, the barn was only open in the summers, but then later, you know, Montauk would, when it would get fogged in, you couldn't see anything. And the oh. whole town would just close in the winter. I mean, there was no, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But then, uh, then you came, that's when you moved to the Hamptons. I did the same thing. Yeah. Um, and. Um, Talk about a little bit about um, Longhouse and what mm -hmm. uh, we there's an, an important uh, fundraiser that's coming up next week. Yeah. And it's important, I think, because of a lot of controversy at, after the founder of Longhouse passed. Right. Uh, describe a little bit of that and then how you, were sure. you involved before that? And right. if not, how did you decide to join up and be right. part of it? Well, I will say, I feel, you know, that I have been part of or the 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 East End has fed my creative sensibilities since the mid 1980s, and and very both in terms of community and and also literally being out here all during COVID. It was the trees that literally kept me alive, and so on. And I was fortunate years several years ago to get Guild Hall's award, and now Longhouse is is honoring me. I'm not that aware of the details of the the controversy and disruption. But what I can tell you is that Jack Larson has been part of my life since I was an infant, because in 1959, my parents in at the edge of Rock Creek Forest, at the edge between Maryland and Washington, 
built a glass house. And that glass house had very specific drapery that was made by Jack Larson. And so literally from the time I was an infant, seeing the world and these enormous expanses of glass through these drapes that were woven, and I would say in some ways were like organic in the sense of like cell structure, literally cell structure. Um, so that name and that and his work was always part of my life. And then when I first came out here, I was like, wait, Jack Larson lives here in the same way that you would find out that the guy who drew Eloise, remember, you know, uh, lived here and Edward and Robert Carroll and like, you know, Jackson Pollock and just every de Kooning was still alive around the corner, you know, everybody that you were incredibly in awe of. And my dad was a painter. And my parents would come and they'd hang out with me here in the little house on Beach Road. And we went over to Longhouse. And I don't even remember if it was particularly, I think it had it was then a little bit of a public place that you could go, but I think Jack was still living in the house and so on. Tell them a little bit about Longhouse and where it is and what it, how big it is and what it's about. That's a good question. I don't know the entire history of it, but Longhouse was Jack Lenore Larson, who was a wonderful designer. And, and I knew him through his designs of fabric and textiles, but Jack Larson had a house that he lived in here and he developed the property as both an incredible like living garden of plants, but also of sculptures. And he collected art and sculpture. And then at a certain point it became open to the public to be able to visit and you know, sort of wander the sculptures. And a few times a year, I feel like the house itself would be open. And now since his passing, you know, it's really be, being preserved and also a, another sort of level of programming that's both educational about the environment and about art and, and meditation and, and things like that are starting to happen there. And you know, the idea is to preserve Jack's legacy, but also for this place, Longhouse, to be a community both gathering place and I think an interesting place of refuge and to contemplate, to go and look at that incredible weave, no pun intended, between art and nature. Because in well, the, the gardens, there are incredible sculptures by you know, some of our best craftspeople all around the world. And then also these beautiful plants that are you know, been growing for 20 years, 30 years. Yeah, I think it, it covers about 12 acres. I mean, it's a wonderful place to stroll and and uh, and and just go in the house itself. And I, I live nearby to it and uh, uh, I've been there not lots of times. It's just one of those remarkable things like yes. uh, there's one in uh, in uh, Bridgehampton that uh, I can't remember. His the Madhu? Yeah. Yeah. Same idea, yeah. Smaller. And, yeah, um, but it, you know, the idea of artists, and this is so huge, because this is also what Edward did, of artists taking their homes and their property and making them into spaces for the future and for other generations and for the community to come and participate and be part of is an enormous gift. I mean, we now have obviously the Pollock House as a museum. We have number of spaces. There's now a new place, Una House, which is about women's art that's in East Hampton, a modernist house. It's, it's wonderful. And there's a lot here for both artists, but just regular people who want to be in conversation with the natural world and also the artistic world to participate in. The church, obviously, in Sag Harbor. Yeah, um, quite remarkable. All 
Well, right. on account of real estate prices. Yeah, right. I mean, incredible generosity of spirit and and forethought of those artists and writers to, to do that. Yeah. These, I mean, it's important too. These are not tech billionaires. These are people who, you know, scrappy people who. That's what these projects right. are possible to some extent by a real estate tax, which yes. is uh, raised, I think, in in the uh, well, uh, since it was created about fifteen years ago, almost over a billion dollars, I think, or some huge sum, and then a lot of it has gone to creating the these kinds of art spaces out here, which is so important. Yeah. Uh, most recently, uh, John Steinbeck's house, you know, house. Yes, exactly. It's a little half acre house and on a residential street and they had to spend like $15 million to save it. Right, cool. I know. Um, I think 150 of that is mine. <laughs> well, uh, to, well, tell me what you've been working on lately or do you, is it, do you live here per permanently? As, I go as back well? and forth to New York. I teach at Princeton. So when I'm teaching, it's a lot. <laughs> I go back and forth to the city because it's a long drive to you know, to be out here. But I actually really, I like being out here year round. I love it in the fall. I love it in the winter. It's as as many people know, it's it's easier and it's incredibly beautiful. And I just, I don't know, I, it is the landscape that feeds me. In terms of what I'm working on now, I would say it's interesting coming out of COVID, I, I did an opera. I've been writing several libretti, librettos of, of both adaptations of my own work, but original pieces. I did a piece for the Kennedy Center's 50th anniversary based on a monument in Washington. And then I did this opera for a company called Experiments in Opera in New York. We had six composers and it was an adaptation of some of my stories. And one thing that I added that was new was this artificial intelligence talking tree. And somehow this AI talking tree that I came up with several years ago, who happens to be a therapist, um, yeah has just lodged in my head. So I'm really interested in the AI talking tree and its progression as a therapist in this complicated family, but also how when it has downtime, it contemplates its own consciousness and, and its own identity. So I'm very, you know, I would say I'm concerned about the world we're living in. I'm obviously concerned about the impact of AI and really interested in nature and really interested in the landscape around us and climate. And so I'm trying to weave all of that together into, I'm not quite sure what. Well, you, you certainly are in the right place for that. I, I think there's something very special, particularly in the, the air, in the mists, in the mists, uh, not so much in Montauk, some in Montauk, but mostly what was found by some of the artists up in Springs, just past the, uh, the, the, the uh, Springs General Store wow. going further, up into uh, north there. Yeah. It was like this dome of incredible light. People talked about it as being compared to uh, south of France and it was so important to them. And I, I thought I experienced it uh, myself and wanted to buy property there. But at the time, I couldn't afford what they were asking for. Same, same. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, yes. And I, and I don't know about you if you have those moments where you like relive the houses that you almost bought. And, you know, the one that you almost bought when it was $200,000 and the next year it was four and then it was six. And then even the one that went up to 1.3, but it was a large piece of land. And then, you know, you're like, it's all oh, gone yeah. now. We, you we, know. All have, we all have those stories. I, I have one of buying 
a piece of property in Montauk for $2,500 that had rights to beach rights for a two mile stretch. It's still there. And I doubled my money. I sold it for four. It's now worth over a million dollars. But I just who knew this was all going to happen? I'm glad we all get a piece of it so that we can save well, some of what we have. And I do feel very lucky. And I do hope one day to be able to have an indoor shower. <laughs> Thank you. I'm for sure I'll have to get a variance for that. But, um, you will. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Thank yeah. you for being on the podcast. I've enjoyed talking to you. And uh, I will see you at the uh, opening. And, and it's you? such a treat, Dan, because I'm such a fan of yours. You don't know that because I'm one of those... You know, we all have invisible fans, people who know who we are, but that we don't, you know, get to say hi. And it's, so it really is a treat. Very kind. When I is have the, followed your activities for years. When is the date of the, the uh, and the time at the fundraiser out there? I, think I believe it is the 22nd, yes. um, which is Saturday. And I would assume it is, let's call it early evening, like 7 p.m. I'm not really sure. But well, if you go to the Longhouse website, it'll have all the details. Bye-bye. And I'll see come on down. Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. Nice talking to you. Good to talk to you, too.